If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, we'll begin reading at verses 1 through 7. In preparation for calling Isaiah to be the prophet who would proclaim the coming judgment, God gave him a vision, a, a theophany of his majestic holiness so well overwhelming that it devastated him and made him realize his own sinfulness. After 52 years of reigning, leprosy caused the death of Uzziah in 739 BC. We can find that in 2 Chronicles 26, 16. And Isaiah began his prophetic ministry that year. He received the prophecies of the first five chapters after his call. But at, uh, but at Isaiah 6, 1, he returns to authenticate what he has already written by describing how he was called. The seraphim mentioned in verse 2 are an order of angelic creatures who bear a similarity to the four living creatures of a Revelation 4, 6, which in turn resemble the cherubim of Ezekiel 10, 1. In verse 3, the seraphim were speaking to each other in antiphonal or responsive praise. The primary thrust of the threefold repetition of God's holiness called the trihagion in Greek, which means thrice holy, is to emphasize God's separateness from and independence of his fallen, fallen creation. It is, the only, it is only mentioned twice in scripture, in Isaiah 6, 3, and in Revelation 4, 8. In verse 4, the, the shaking and smoke symbolize God's holiness as it relates to his wrath and judgment. Exodus 19, 16, and Revelation 15, 8. In verse 5, if the lips are unclean, so is the heart. This vision of God's holiness vividly reminded the prophet of his own unworthiness, which deserved judgment. The burning coal mentioned in verse 6, taken from the altar of incense in heaven, Revelation 8.3, is symbolic of God's purifying work. Repentance is painful. And lastly, in verse 7, spiritual cleansing for special service to the Lord, not salvation, is in view. We'll begin reading at Isaiah chapter 6 at verse 1. This is God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Amen. New Testament reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2. We'll begin reading at verse 1 through verse 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The beginning of chapter 2 is one of the most pivotal portions of the apostolic writings dealing with the question of our sinful nature. It explains human corruption in a way which, with the possible exception of segments of Romans, underscores more heavily than any other part of the New Testament our total dependence upon the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us to spiritual life. The question, of course, reaches its climax with the issue of whether or not a person who is unregenerate, who has not been quickened by the Holy Spirit, can in any way incline himself or turn himself with the affection towards Christ. Classical Reformed theology is insistent that man is so fallen that he has no disposition, inclination, or bent toward the things of Christ and would never respond to the call of the gospel unless first the Holy Spirit changed the disposition of the heart through regeneration. A sobering reminder of the total sinfulness and lostness from which believers have been redeemed. They are not dead because sinful acts that they have committed, but because of their sinful nature. We'll begin reading at Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 1. This is God's word. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we have all, uh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. On our first Sundays, for a number of months, I forgot to look up just how many, but I suspect it's well over six or eight, we have been involved in a rather extensive study of the central portion of this epistle to the Hebrews. And one of the troubles with that is because we're only in the passage once a month, it's kind of hard to keep the continuity going, and that kind of requires a little more of an introduction each time to remind everybody where we are. I, I think I've tuned it down a bit, but we will, we will see. I remind you about the flow of Hebrews. Hebrews opens, and it is written to Hebrews. It's written to a people who are very, very familiar with the Old Testament system, the sacrificial system, the priestly system, the temple rites, uh, what it meant to be a religious Jew. It seems, though, to have been written to individuals like that who have come to know Christ, who have, who have recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, and at least made a, a public acknowledgement of such things, and now they're, they're kind of known as Christian Jews. And yet, as time has passed, and everything didn't work out just wonderful, uh, there are those that are inclined to kind of say, well, you know, what's wrong with the old way? And there's probably a lot of social pressure to go back to the old way. There, there may be some economic pressure to go back to the old ways. If you became a Christian in the first century, you were isolated. You weren't in the part of the synagogue anymore. Early in Christianity, Paul could go into synagogues, but pretty quickly, you went in there, you got beat up. He kept going, he kept getting beaten up. But your average man's not going to do that, and so you're, you're cut off from your people, you're cut off from your culture. By the time the book of Hebrews has been written, it seems as though many were thinking, well, maybe we ought to just go back. It was a lot easier then. Things kind of fell in place. The author to Hebrews writes in Hebrews 1.1, just a reminder that long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's referring to the Old Testament, which they're very familiar with. But he says, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Now he is talking about New Testament revelation there. He defines his Son as an individual whom God the Father has appointed to be the heir of all things. And then almost parenthetically points out, it was through that heir that God created all things. It really, is, it really is a phenomenal verse, Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1. The second chapter of Hebrews opens with, because that's true and everything that flowed from it's true, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. It's important that we pay attention to the teaching of Scripture, because if we don't, the way he puts it is, lest we drift away from it. A lot of us, myself included, have been Christians long enough to know that there are times in which we kind of take things for granted. We take the, we, 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 we've heard these things so much, they just kind of wash over us. I had someone describe at one time 
is sometimes I feel like a submarine. I'm going through the water. And the, the water's ahead, and the, and the Word of God comes, and I, and I see it, and I go through it, but then it just closes behind me, and it's like I was never there. And it was never there. That's a sad place to be. The author of Hebrews says, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And then he points out in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you don't pay attention, if, you don't, if you're not continually fine-tuning your understanding, which God gives us the ability to do. He's given us the Spirit of God. He's given us His unchanging Word. He's given us the wisdom of those who've gone before to interpret and help us understand these things. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In chapter 3, verse 3, he points out that Jesus, you know, you're in love. He says, you Jews, you're in love with Moses. He's a great, great man. But Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Claiming you're one of Moses' people is not the best. He's a wonderful guy. It's a, the law of God's a wonderful thing. But there's one who fulfilled the law. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And then, when he really gets to his point in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and this is, this is in a sense what this whole series has been about, he says, we have a great high priest. Our great high priest has passed through the heavens. Our great high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast to our confession. Hold fast our confession. He says in verse 16, let us then with confidence, because of that confession, draw near to the throne of grace. Because if we do, there we will receive mercy. And there we will find grace which will be a great help to us in time of need. And every single one of us live our lives going from time of need to time of need to time of need. In other words, you always need grace and help in time of need. In chapter 8, the author really begins to bore down on this great high priest. In verse 1, he says, the point of everything I've been saying is this. We have such a high priest. And where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's right at the right hand of God. Verse 6. He's there because he's obtained a ministry. Um, and a ministry that's much more excellent than the covenant that was before. The covenant that was before, which was the Mosaic covenant. He has a much better one. Why is it better? Verse 6 says of chapter 8, because it's based on better promises. And the better promises, we spent quite a bit of time on that, are laid out in verses 10, 11, and 12. They come right out of Jeremiah 31. I'll put my laws into their minds. I'll write my laws on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. That following the law of Moses becomes an internal following. In a sense, it's a parallel 
to Jesus' opening passages on the Sermon on the Mount. The fact that you've heard it written, or you've said it, you've heard it said, you've seen it written, thou shalt not hate, thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. Every one of those things, every one of those issues, Jesus Christ internalized and then elevated. Okay, I've never murdered anybody. Have you ever hated anybody? Ever been angry with anybody? I've never committed adultery. Have you ever lusted after someone? You see, as soon as it goes internal and becomes elevated, it becomes a standard we can't meet. And that's kind of the whole point of the law. You can't keep that early covenant, that first covenant. But there's a new covenant, and it's going to be written on our hearts. It's going to be in our minds. God will be our God. We shall be his people. The law is internalized. And ultimately, it's going to be universally known when we're all glorified, no doubt. And the last promise in verse 12 is that I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God can't change. If he knows something, he can't unknow it. He can't forget anything. What that passage is saying is God's going to choose not to remember it. Incidentally, that's how Christian forgiveness is supposed to work. I understand, you understand, you've been wronged, you can't forget it. But you can choose not to remember it against one another. That's Christian forgiveness. God says, I'll recall their sins against them no more. Now in chapter 9, and we're, we're approaching our text now, we understand that when in verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, past tense. Remember, he's, a, he's our high priest. He's in heaven. He's the right hand of God. The good things have now come. He did that by entering once for all into the holy places. He didn't go in there like an earthly priest by the blood of goats and cows. He went by means of his own blood. And he secured thereby, the text tells us, an eternal redemption. Verse 26 of chapter 9 tells us he's appeared once for all. In fact, we spent a little time on the very next phrase after that. At the end of the ages, there is a sense in which when Jesus Christ died upon Calvary's cross, was buried and rose from the dead, the whole point of history was complete. Salvation was accomplished. We're just kind of playing out the scoring now. But we know how this story ends. We know how history ends. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. To put away the power of sin by the sacrifice of himself. He sacrificed himself to pay the sin debt of his people. He sacrificed himself to appease the justified wrath of God against his people. The last time we were here, we were in chapter 10. We concluded with... Verses 12, 13, and 14, that because Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for us, sins, 
and has sat down at the right hand of God, and he's just sitting there waiting for everything else to play out. All of his energy made a footstool because by a single offering, he's perfected for all time everybody who's being sanctified. Now, if you've been following along, you'd say, well, that's me. Because I know I'm not totally sanctified now, but I know I'm a believer. I'm being sanctified. That's what you ought to think if you've been following this along. That's the way it's supposed to be. Is that the way it is? Is that what's going on in your life? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this beautiful day, this beautiful creation we awoke to this morning, the order, the structure, the infinitesimal detail of everything we observed as we made our way to, to gather this morning in your midst. Lord, we know that there are families here that have gone to a lot of effort to get everything just right, not just, just personally, but for one another within families and within the body of Christ. So a lovely meal's been prepared. The elements have been prepared for the Lord's table. Everything's in its place. And all those things have been done out of love for, for you and for one another and for the things of God. But Lord, those things don't come natural. Those are gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Lord, we thank you for our families. We thank you for our children. We thank you for the work that you do in our midst and among us. And as you strengthen this body, as we learn, as we grow, as we mature in the faith, we always see more that's, that needs attention. Lord, we don't want to drift away from anything. We want to grow and mature in the faith. We want, to, we want to grasp what it means to be being sanctified, to be being transformed from glory to glory to the image of our Lord and Savior <coughs> with the confidence that when we do see him, we will be like him. Not because we're worthy, but because he is worthy and he's made us worthy. Today, we are just forgiven sinners. We are absolutely dependent upon your spirit to do a work in our lives, in our minds, that we may understand spiritual truth. Lord, use this time to that end. Strengthen us, build us up. Make us able to walk worthy of our calling. For your glory, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Our text this morning will be Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. In that text, what's going on here is the author of this particular epistle is moving from his teaching, which all this has been up to this point, to its application. He's been marshalling facts to this point, given by divine revelation, and now he's taking those facts and he's moving them to what they mean for our lives today. Think about it this way. If the creator God of the universe... The one who's made his glory known through that creation and has now sent his only begotten son, whom he loves and in whom he is well pleased, to live a life that is absolutely sinless, sinless perfection, the kind of life that we're incapable of living, 
and to pay a sin debt we can't even begin to pay because we can't stop sinning. And it's not only called us from death into life, because we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, but he has given us life by his Spirit. He regenerated us. We've been born from above. He's opened the door of faith to us. He's granted us repentance. He's done everything necessary for our salvation as a gift to us. And as we read today, how are we going to escape if we neglect a salvation that great? All those things are true. All those things are laid out, in a sense, in Hebrews over and over and over again to get us to this point. And if they're all true, according to the unchanging word of God, our text then says, therefore, see, that's how we know it's all being summed up. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's just a magnificent paragraph. It begins with this, since we have confidence. Well, do we have confidence? Or more specifically, do you have confidence to enter the holy place? It's a fearful thing to come to the presence of a holy God. And that if we come to the presence of, if you come into the presence of a holy God as a sinful man, you can't be in his presence. And outside the presence of God, there is no hope. But of course, all of us will come to the presence of God. All believers and all lost. That really is what the great judgment's all about. Everybody's going to be resurrected. We spent, we spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15, and we've, we're in the passages now. We've kind of described what our body's going to be like, our resurrection bodies. There's the other side of that picture. And those that are raised to everlasting condemnation are in a whole different situation. But as believers, we're to have confidence. We, Paul wrote to... The Romans, in Romans 5, 1, since we've been justified by our faith, since, since we've been justified, we've been declared to be righteous because our faith is in Christ's finished work, we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By the blood of Jesus, we have peace with God. Through him, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. He pauses. If you're, if you're justified, you should have confidence. This is the confidence that we have, but more importantly, it's the confidence we must know that we have. 
Every Christian, every Christian wrestles from time to time with doubts. And when we have doubts, it's very important we go back and we look at the text. We look at the promise of God. We ask ourselves, do I believe that? Do I believe that? Do I believe that? Do I... Am I set on that? When doubts assail, what do I do? We are to have confidence. People who place their trust in the promises of God have confidence. You have to have it. You do have it. But you have to know that you have it. If you're going to live a productive, godly life. If you trust in God, if you trust in Jesus Christ, in fact... The text is telling you you're standing before an open door. It's not like you don't have access in the presence of God. It's an open door, free and open to you. Why? Because your sins are covered. Your sins are covered by the blood. When he sees you, he sees Jesus Christ in a sense. Verse 19 tells us it's by his blood. Verse 20 tells us it's by his body, his blood and his body, the totality of everything that he accomplished through his incarnation, through his sinless life, through his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. And we have this glorious privilege of coming before him and simply casting our burdens upon him and trusting in his providential watch care over us in every area of our life as we seek to live for his glory. Why would you cast away a salvation that great? Because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you'll recognize this phrase, ever liveth to intercede for us. That door is always open to his people. And that access, that open door, is a great possession of believers. You know, Old Testament saints didn't have that. Isaiah didn't have that. In fact, as Brother Walt was reading there, when Isaiah sees that vision of God high and lifted up and the seraphim, and here's the holy, holy, holies, oh my goodness, I'm undone. What had to happen? That seraphim, that angel, had to go and take a coal off the altar and touch his lips with it and tell him he's, he's forgiven. His sender says, God had to do something. Now, he certainly understood he needed something done, but it was hopeless unless God did something. That access has been purchased for us. Old Testament saints needed an earthly priest. When they went to him, they had to come with a sacrifice. And that sacrifice couldn't be just any old animal. It had to be your best animal, the one without mar, without blemish. And of course, that didn't settle the battle because you had to come back with another one. And then another one. And then another one. There was all kinds of occasions. And, and annual occasions and monthly occasions and occasion occasions when you got married, when you had children, when somebody died. There's all kinds of times you had to come with a sacrifice. They all had to be repeated over and over and over again all of their lives. But we have this, this grand entrance, this possession, this, the door is open to us as believers. And we have a second great possession. 
It's directly linked to the first one. Verse 21 tells us that when we go through that door, what we have is a great priest over the house of God. In other words, we can come into the presence of God. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. Because one, the way has been opened for us by our great high priest. And two, because he's there awaiting us. He's representing us. He's interceding for us. That means he's pleading, but he's pleading effectually. He's always heard. He's pleading effectually for our acceptance. In fact, he's even sent, and this was the promise of the Spirit, he's even sent his Holy Spirit to us to equip us and to fit us and to make us able to be true worshipers, to be priests of a holy God in a sense, a kingdom of priests. And because our priest is there, we can know that we belong there. It's not a strange place for us to be in the presence of God. And so we can approach with confidence. And I just covered a lot of ground there. <laughs> That's the story you're going to have to think about. But it's not hard just to go back to those couple of verses and you will see it. Now, those two possessions, access and the fact through that access is our great high priest, are the basis for three very significant exhortations. And when I say exhortations, in a sense, I mean commands. These are not optional. These are things that believers should see as authoritative in their lives. Before we turn to those verses, Verses 22, 23, and 24, let me point out that there's a pattern. Verses 22 relies upon faith. Verses 23 relies upon hope. Verse 24, upon love. An interesting trio there. When Paul wrote back to the Thessalonians, who he'd only been with less than three Sabbaths, and yet they became believers, and they became strong believers, and they withstood a great deal of persecution because it, he says, I remember, in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, I remember before God, our God and Father, your work of faith and your labor of love and the steadfastness of your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, love. He concludes that epistle. 1 Thessalonians 5.8. You know, we belong to that day, that day that is coming. So let us be sober. Let us put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, and love just line up for Paul. And that's why he concludes that magnificent 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the, the love chapter. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three but the greatest of these is love. And now we have these three verses, 22, 23, 24, and they line up the same way. Verse 22, command, draw near with a true heart. 
Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Seize the opportunity to draw near with that full, true heart in a full assurance of faith. Now, we've heard this idea of drawing near before back in Hebrews 4.16. Then it was, if we draw near, we will receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Now we say, make sure you have a true heart. Make sure you have full assurance of faith. What is a true heart? It's a true heart that has complete confidence in the word of God. What is full assurance of faith? Full assurance of faith is the fact that that work applies to you. I mentioned the Ephesians 6 passage. Brother Walt also read to us the Ephesians 2 passage, which starts with the absolute reality that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves alive spiritually. God has to do something. He does something. It's a remarkable thing. But in that state of deadness, we do what we want to do, what we think we ought to do, what everybody else is doing, because we are by nature children of wrath. And... Everybody else telling us it's okay, and they seem to be getting along, and we're going to. And all of us did. It's a perfectly reasonable way to live your life. But you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you don't even know it. And we come to that magnificent turning point where, but God. Why? Because he's rich in mercy and his love for us. Caused us to be born again. Sent the Spirit to regenerate us. As I said in my prayer, grants us faith, grants us repentance. Everything we think we did, we received as a gift. And most of us actually came to the faith thinking the wrong way about it, but we still came to the faith. God does that. It's an amazing thing. And we look back at it and say, you know, what did everybody else? Because God hadn't done it yet for them. Well, what, what needs to happen? Well, God needs to do it for them. Well, how does he do that? Well, he uses you. He uses the word of God. He uses believers. He uses other people's example. And he uses problems, crises in people's lives to reveal to them they aren't adequate in themselves. But just look at it. verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart. Let us draw near in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Believers are actually delivered from a guilty and tormented conscience. You say, well, that's news to me because periodically I still got one of those. So do I. And what do you do about it? What do I do about it? I go back to the original premise. Now, there's nothing special about me. Yes, my conscience bothers me. There's so many things I wish I'd go back and do different. There are things, there's things I said in the last hour I wish I could go back and do different. Oh. There's certainly, certainly if, I, if I just lay there at night and think over my life, it's a miserable existence. Though I thought I was doing pretty good at the time. So what do you do? What do you do with that guilty, tormented conscience? God says he's not going to remember it. Because you're in Christ. Paul could have spent a lot of time thinking about poor Stephen. 
asking God to forgive him and the other people stoning him to death and just feeling wretched and worthless the rest of his life. But he cautiously said, I forget those things that have gone before. I remember that I'm not worthy of being an apostle. I'm the least likely because I persecuted the church of God. But I've been forgiven that. I'm living for the glory of God and I'm going to burn out for Christ. And in a sense, he did. Also speaks about having our bodies been washed with pure water. Now, I suspect that has something to do with our baptism, but not necessarily with our Baptist or our Presbyterian or some other version of this. What it has to do with, I think, is our very public identification that we believe in the power of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That God delivered him up as a sacrifice for our trespasses, for our sins, and raised him up for our justification, as Romans 4, 25 tells us. So let us draw near with that true heart and full assurance of faith. Secondly, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 23, unswervingly, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, test everything. That's probably not a bad idea in our society. Listen carefully, particularly online. Test everything because most of it is not in 100, almost none of it is 100% true. Test everything, but he didn't say just test everything, live suspiciously. He said when you test everything, hold fast Get a hold of things with a death grip, the things that are truly good. So here we have one of those hold fasts. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Again, the author of Hebrews has already referred to this in Hebrews 4.14. Since we have this great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And he comes back here and he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he, has, he who promised is faithful. That's more important than you realize. Because the basis of our holding on to our confidence is not within us. If your confidence is in your ability to from here on be good enough, you're going to fail before we get out of here today. Your confidence has to be in he who made the promises. It's not in our faithfulness. It's in the faithfulness of God who cannot lie. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18 says, You know, when God wanted to show even more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, this unchangeable character of his nature and his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And the oath was based upon the fact it's impossible for God to lie. So if God says this is what's required and this is what you've done because this is what he's done for you and you've placed his faith in it, it's impossible for God to lie. Cast not away your confidence. Hold fast to confession to your hope. Thirdly, Draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. 
Let us consider. This is a command just as well. Let it really be something you focus upon and devote mental attention to. Let us be concerned for how we're going to stir up one another to love and good works. Real love is active. Real love actually does things. It's not a warm and fuzzy. It's not the love the world offers here that dissipates over time. And oftentimes dissipates over familiarity. You know, the better you get to know people, the less you love them sometimes. That's not the way God's love is. It is not the way our love is to be. The author doesn't just leave it there. He says there's two components to this. There's a positive component and there's a negative component. Negatively, he says, don't neglect to meet together as the habit of some is. I asked Charlene, and she'd be with us this morning if she could. I very rarely preview anything with Charlene. But if I think I'm going to step on a mine, I ask her, well, how bad do you think it's going to be? I said, Charlie, when I, when I get to this passage, and it says, think carefully about how important it is you not neglect to meet together. How hard should I press this? And she gave me good counsel. I'm not going to share exactly what the counsel is, but she gave me good counsel. She generally does. That's why I ask. And she's a gift to me. Let me say it this way. What do you think those words mean? I mean, they're not, they're not big theological terms. Now, I, I, I want to, I rather than give any offense, I want to hasten to add here. But what that does not say is every time the church doors open, you need to be in your seat. That is a way of interpreting that. It doesn't say that. To start with, there's churches that open every day, three times a day. It doesn't say that. But it does say something. And it does mean something. And the Spirit of God within you as you read a text like that, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. The Spirit of God tells you something. It presses upon you somewhat. I think the answer, the answer that, I, that I, I, I think the Scripture gives us is back up in verse 24 what we're trying to do here, what we're commanded to do here is consider carefully how we can stir one another up to love and to the good works for which we were saved. That is the way Ephesians 2 verse 10 ends. That there are good works that believers are to do which the Lord knew before the foundation of the world before you were a speck in anybody's eye. There's, there's a life to be lived for the glory of God. So let's just say how often? Often enough so you know your brethren well enough to know how you can stir them up to love and to good works. And really, I'll leave that between you and your conscience. 
That's the negative side. That's really not that negative if you think about it. It it really is what makes body life work. But positively, verse 25 concludes, but encouraging one another. And see, that's not unrelated. Encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now the day in in the ESV is capitalized. It's clearly talking about the day in which the Lord's going to return. But whether the Lord's return or we go to him first, individually or collectively, today is the day you have. Today is the day to be used for his glory. This is a wonderful capstone passage of this section of scripture. There's much to be thought about, much to be pondered upon, and much to be lived for the glory of God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, how good, how gracious, how merciful, how patient you are with us. Lord, what wonderful counsel we receive from your word. With what clarity the Spirit presses it upon us. Lord, as we, as we, as we experience your grace, sometimes we're overwhelmed with a feeling of unworthiness. Lord, we are made worthy by your work in and through our lives. So in that worthiness, we come before you and we come before you as, as living sacrifices. Now we're going to be called in a few moments to your table. Where is the example of the greatest living sacrifice ever? the living sacrifice of the Son of God to make all of this possible. We are a blood-bought people. Well, what a joy it is, what comfort it is, what assurance we have from knowing none of this depends upon us. But what responsibility we have to the one who gave it all to us. So Lord, continue to grow us in our understanding. Continue to strengthen our faith. Lord, use us for the extension of your kingdom. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.